All right, thank you for praying for us while we were away. We prayed for you as well and are glad to be back. And uh, we'll be reporting on our trip tonight in the evening service. So we look forward to doing that. But the Lord is good. The Lord is always good. And uh, we're great, grateful to be a part of His program. And uh, grateful to see His hand continue to, to work there in the Ivory Coast. Well, let's begin with a word of prayer and then we'll get into our study of Ezekiel this morning. Let's pray. Father, You are the great God of heaven and earth, of the whole universe. There is none like You. And um, You have set the stars in the sky. You have um, put the water in place and kept it where it's at. And You have made the animals and tamed them and caused them to do what You want them to do. And You have made us. And so we are Your creatures. We belong to You. And we want to, to honor you with our, our lips and with our hearts today. So would you help us uh, to engage our whole persons uh, as we worship you? Would you come and meet with us and teach us your ways? Help us to see our sin and where we need to repent and help us to see your righteousness and your goodness and where we need to obey and trust you. And we pray that you'd help us now in this hour as we look at this prophecy by Ezekiel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ezekiel tells us a lot about what's going on during the mid-6th century B.C., but he also tells us a lot about Christ and about the new heavens and the new earth that will be coming. And so, in a sense, Ezekiel looks back backward towards the time of the Exodus, and he also looks forward towards the time of the, the new heaven and the new earth. Ezekiel prophesies about the same time as Jeremiah does. But remember, Jeremiah was not prophesying um, as an exile. He was kind of, he, he prophesied before the exile began for Judah, 586 B.C., and then on into the exile. And he prophesied uh, more from the outside, looking in. But Ezekiel actually prophesies from the inside because he's actually part of the captives. He's actually one of the ones who is taken away from Judah to Babylon. And so he has this this first-hand look at what's going on, but it still he's doing has the same purpose as Jeremiah, which is speak the truth about God to the people, call them to repentance and to believe in God. So we, let's look at this in chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. Now it came about in the 30th year on the 5th day of the 4th month while I was by the river Chebar among the Exiles, the heavens were open, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's exile, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the, pro- the priest, son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans, by the river Kibar, and there the hand of the Lord came upon him. So, Ezekiel has a different perspective on the exile since he is actually in it, and he's in the land of Judah's enemies. And, um, and so we'll see um, some of his perspective here in, in the text. Um, the theme there, um, again, we're still in the, the dispensation of law here all the way until we get to Acts 2. But the theme here is the, the glory of God has departed from his land because he is jealous for his name, but his glory will return because he is jealous for his name. Ultimately, his glory will be restored to the entire earth in the last days. And we could say because he is jealous for his name. Um, What we're going to see in this 
prophecy is that God is all about uh, bringing glory for Himself. And that's not a selfish thing or a, um, a proud thing for God because there is no higher being than God. If there were a higher being than God, then He would be idolatrous in, in loving Himself. He would be um, proud in loving Himself and, and pursuing His own glory. But because there is no higher being, He is completely right to do so. Not to be proud. That's not a word that's ever used to describe God, but certainly to, to gain glory for His name. There is an outline on the back that uh, shows a similar uh, theme that we see throughout the, the prophets, that is judgment and then grace. Uh, so you have the judgment that's coming, the judgments that, that's here, and God's call for them to repent, and then also the grace and the restoration that's coming, um, particularly in the end times. Now, chapter 1 is a riveting chapter that describes uh, an amazing scene that takes place in heaven. And, um, and I would commend it to you. It's, it's a revelation of God on His throne. And um, we don't have time to read the whole thing. So let's start in verse 26 and we'll see a part of this. After describing the cherubim there in their description, verse 26 reads, Now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne like lapis lazuli in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upward something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire and there was a radiance around him as the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. Then he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak with you. So we see some language here that we see in other parts of Scripture that probably reminded you of some of the visions of God, the revelations of God, Theophanies in the Old Testament like Exodus 24, Isaiah 6. Remember, Isaiah falls down before the throne of God. Or Revelation 1 and 4 of the, the picture of Jesus, kind of this radiance that comes off of Him, this, this glowing um, fire. And um, these, chapter, these chapters throughout the Bible um, are a picture of God's glory. We can't fully understand and, and picture what God looks like, and He's, he's ultimately not defined that is God the Father, um, but rather he's, he's just described in terms of the glory that comes out from him. There's a couple things to notice in these, these um, verses that we've just looked at. First, God himself is not described. Only his surrounding, surroundings and his garments are. So people are not seeing God himself. They're seeing the glory that emanates from God. Second, the person that has the vision, uh, like in other places in the Bible, falls down on his face when they come into the presence of God, right? That's what happens in Isaiah 6. You see this in chapter 1, verse 26 here. Uh, I'm sorry, verse uh, 28. I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. And then lastly, God consoles these people. Whenever they fall on their face before the glory of the Lord, God says, get up, or I'm going to say something to you. Or like in Isaiah, He says, um, uh, um, I forget what He says there, but He says something. And... Um, it's, it's really important and riveting, but I don't have... Yes, so you'll have to look that up on your own. It's a little teaser for you. All right, so there's um, 
there's this opening vision of God. And I think what that does is it sets the foundation for us for the rest of the, the, um, the prophecy to show us that, that what's happening in the exile and them going into the exile and in God bringing them back, promising to bring them back, is all about God and His glory. Um, let's see. I guess I don't have a section on chapters 5 through 7. The book of the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a... You can read the rest of Ezekiel's call to ministry in chapters 2 and 3. In chapters 4 through 7, we see the beginning of the announcements against Jerusalem for their idolatry. Uh, Let's see some of this. Chapter 5, verse 13. This destruction that's coming on Jerusalem is motivated by God's zeal for His own glory. Notice verse 13. Thus my anger will be spent and I will satisfy my wrath on them and I will be appeased. Then they will know that I, the Lord, have spoken in my zeal when I have spent my wrath upon them. So God's saying, listen, the reason this judgment's coming is because of my glory. It's being defamed. And I want to show you who I am. I want to show the nations who I am. Chapter 6, verse 9 see a similar motivation. Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations to which they will be carried captive, how I've been hurt by their adulterous hearts which turned away from me, and by their eyes which played the harlot after their idols, and they will loathe themselves in their own sight for the evils which they have committed for all their abominations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would inflict disaster on them. See something similar in 727, and we could go on looking throughout Ezekiel to see these kinds of proclamations. But this is no different than what we saw in Exodus. God is saying, listen, the reason that I left you there in un, under oppression of Pharaoh and Egypt is because I wanted to show you and the nations and Egypt what a great God I am. And that theme just keeps coming up over and over and again. And so even in God's judgments, He's showing something about Himself and His glory. And Ezekiel reminds us that God's motivation behind all of His actions has been for the sake of His own name. Now, skip forward to chapter 20, which is on the second page there for you. Um, Chapter 20 in your Bible. Why has God not destroyed His people um, while they were in Judah? Why did God not destroy His people while they were in Egypt? even though they rebelled against Him. And why not destroy them in the wilderness completely and wipe them out? Well, chapter 20, verses 8 and 9 gives us a window into God's motivation and keeping some of them alive. Chapter 20, verse 8, But they rebelled against Me and were not willing to listen to Me. They did not cast away the detestable things for their eyes, of their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt, but I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. God's saying, listen, the sins of Israel, while under the oppression of Pharaoh, were enough for him to pour his wrath out on them. But he's saying, I didn't do that because the sake of my name, for the sake of my name. I did not do that. Uh, I didn't want Egypt to have a reason to defame me even more. 
And so I, I delivered you. I made myself look great as I am, God's saying, by bringing you out of Egypt, showing them what a great God I am, and then bringing the judgment on you later. God could have wiped them out in the wilderness as well. But, verse 13, notice, But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes. They rejected my ordinances, by which if a man observes them, he will live. And my Sabbath they greatly profaned. Then I resolved, so this is while they're in the wilderness, then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them in the wilderness to annihilate them, but I acted for the sake of my name and that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations before whose eyes, before whose sight I had brought them out. So again, they, their sins were worthy of complete annihilation, but we remember that God was on the brink of doing that, but then that's when Moses interceded on their behalf and said, no, you know, what will the Egyptians say? What will the rest of the nation say that have seen you bring them out of Egypt? Um, you would do well to stay faithful to your name. Of course, God had already planned to stay faithful to His promise. And so for the sake of His name, He did not destroy them in the wilderness, com- wilderness completely. Now, many of them did, but not all of them. And so we have something similar going on here um, for Judah as they're going into exile, God could have, in their idolatry, in the middle of Judah, God could have wiped them out. Look at verse 41. Verse 41 of chapter 20. As a soothing aroma, I will accept you when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered. And I will prove myself holy among you in the sight of the nations. And you will know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel and to the land which I swore to give your forefathers. There you will remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight and all the evil things which you have done. Then you will know that I am the Lord and I have dealt with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways or according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel. That last verse is really important. It's for God's name's sake. It's for the sake of God's name so that they would know that He is the Lord, even though He could have, He would have been just to destroy them according to their evil deeds. But I did not treat you as such. In other words, if, if God was going to treat them according to their own merit and worth, they would be destroyed. And that reminds us of how merciful God has been to us. That we, if we are left to our own righteousnesses, our own merits, then we are worthy of eternal destruction. But in His dealings with us, God has chosen to lift up His name, to exalt His name. And that's what happened for us in Christ, the exact representation of God, that in the cross we have nothing to boast in, nothing we can say about what what happened to us, because all that happened in our salvation is of God. It's all of grace. And so in the end, we can't say anything but but I boast in the cross and nothing else. Not in my striving for the cross. I wasn't striving for the cross. I was turning from the cross. I was running from God. And and in the end, that's why salvation is so beautiful because God gets all the glory, right? I mean, we can't take any of the glory because it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. And that faith is is not of ourselves, but it's a gift of God so that no one can boast. Um, So, 
I would commend to you there Romans 3, 25 to 27, which talked about uh, Christ, God being both just, both just and the justifier of the ones who are ungodly. That's us. And in that, we see the, the picture of salvation. We see the description of salvation. It leaves us with nothing left to do but to praise God for His grace. I mean, why was I made to hear His voice and enter while there's room? And thousands made a wretched choice and would rather starve than come. And if you take that why question back one step, you can't say, because there's something good in me. Why, why was I made to hear His voice? Did, did I force my ear, my spiritual ears to work? Did I build some kind of sonar system so that I could better hear the voice of God? No, I was running from God. I was His enemy. And for some reason, God opened my ears and He didn't open my neighbor's ears. And, and that should, for us, humble us and, and help us to recognize what great grace we have in, in God and in Christ. Any questions, comments? Alright, let's take a step back now to chapter 8. Um, we're still seeing this theme of God's glory. It's, it's there from the beginning. You know, God is seen in His glory. And then we skipped ahead to chapter 20 where God said, this is all about my name. It's all about me and my namesake. I want you to know that I am the Lord. But in chapter 8, God gives Ezekiel a vision of what's happening back in Jerusalem. And it's a vision of idolatry and and rebellion. In verse 5, we're not going to read all these, but Ezekiel sees idolatry at the altar gate. So the altar, remember, is out in the courtyard of the tabernacle, uh, uh, of the, the the temple. It's out in the courtyard. So it's it's like you'd enter the temple courtyard and, and there um, you see this idolatry going on. And you step in a little closer into the entrance of the court in verse 7, more idolatry. Verse 14, you go to the north gate of the temple. Now you're kind of into the outer courts of the temple and more idolatry. Verse 16, there you're in the inner court of the Lord's house. That is, that the closer you get to the, the center of the temple, the Holy of Holies, what was it supposed to be? What was the picture supposed to be? The closer you got to the center, what was it supposed to be? More and more holy. And here, the closer you get to the center of the temple, it's more and more idolatrous. What was supposed to be set apart as a place where God was hallowed, where He was worshipped, has now turned into a place of utter and complete abandonment of God's rules and idolatry, and a place of idolatry. And it's because of this that we see the following in chapter 10, verse 4. Chapter 10, verse 4. Then. The glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple, and the temple was filled with the cloud, and the court and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. So here, this is a manifestation of God's glory. Remember, He would come down, and He would be seen in in what kinds of manifestations by the people outside the tabernacle in the temple. What was it during the day? A pillar of cloud during the day and fire at night. Okay, so this is this is that. God's glory as represented in this pillar of fire is now coming to... Um, it's, it's seen there in the Holy of Holies and the cherubim are now rising up. And remember, the cherubim are, are kind of these angels that are, are 
uh, stationed at various places throughout the Old Testament to to ward off any unholiness, right? You had that in the garden, right? When the sin took place, Adam and Eve are set outside the garden. And what are placed outside of the garden gates? Two cherubim, right? Two soldiers, effectively. Standing guard. No one unholy can come in here. This is God's presence. And the same thing you see in, in the, the, the establishment of the tabernacle, right? Where with, with the, the most holy place on top of the Ark of the Covenant are two what? Two cherubim. They're made out of wood and then covered in gold. And they are designed to protect in the sense they're, they're a picture there of, of protecting God's holiness. And the same thing is true about the veil of the temple. There are two cherubim that are embroidered on the, the, the veil so that when people would walk into the outer court of the tabernacle or the temple, they would see this veil and they would say, God is holy, we must keep out. And, and here, now, these cherubim are seen in chapter 10 of, of kind of pulling away from... Oh, that was amazing. Um, they're they're kind of pulling out of of the most holy place. And what Ezekiel sees next is hard to describe, um, and he's just trying to describe it as best as he can as a human, fallen human being. But some in some sense, there's some kind of heavenly chariot, and 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 it's being taken away. Look at chapter ten, verse sixteen. Now when the cherubim moved, the wheels could go beside them. And when the cherubim lifted up their wings to rise from the ground, the wheels would not turn from beside them. When the cherubim stood still, the wheels would stand still. And when they rose up, the wheels would rise with them, for the spirit of the living beings was in them. What's going on here? I mean, what's the purpose of this chariot? Look at verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. When the cherubim departed, they lifted their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight with the wheels beside them, and they stood still at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the Lord hovered over them. So it's as if these cherubim are riding off with the glory of the Lord into uh, into the horizon. They're, they're moving themselves away from what is unholy and, and profane. And so this vision is a sad and frightening time for the people of Israel. It's sad because it represents God's displeasure with the people's covenant unfaithfulness. That He is not going to live in the, the temple any longer. The temple is no longer holy. It's not a place where sacrifices could be made rightly. But it's also a time that is consoling. In chapter 11, verse 16, we read, Thus says the Lord, though I had removed them far away from the nations, though I had scattered them among the countries, yet I was, sanct- I was a sanctuary for them a little while in the countries where they had gone. So God's saying, listen, there's coming a time when, yes, the Jews will be scattered, but there's, t- there, there's a time coming when, when they will be restored. They will be brought back. There's going to be a harvest that comes. And the glory of the Lord will return. But for now, idolatry has taken over. Idolatry has has um, been practiced almost universally in among the people of Judah. And uh, I could take some time here to talk about what idolatry is. I think you understand 
what it is. It's not just putting little symbols or, or items up on your mantle and bowing down to those things, although that kind of thing happens around the world. We tend to not do that sort of thing in, in America, but and especially in our Christian circles, but can we not also have idols, even though they're not made of human hands? We could say we, we do have idols made of human hearts. But like John Calvin says, our heart is a, a factory for idols. You know, like Henry Ford was constantly putting, uh, making cars, and at the end of the assembly line would come out a, a car that could be purchased and used. And, and what we're doing is in our hearts, we're building up things that we love that take the place of God. That's really what an idol is. And so we have to guard our own hearts. Well, let's look at the promises of restoration because it's been a sad picture so far. Um, In chapter 34, chapter 34, verse 23, Then I will set over them one shepherd, my shepherd David, and he will feed them. Now, how could David be set up over them? David, has David lived at this point yet or, or not? Yes. Okay. David was around in 1000 B.C. We're, we're now around 597, I think we said. Yeah, 597 B.C. So David's long dead, several generations gone. So how is it that David is going to be set up as their shepherd? Well, I think we understand this, that when the Scriptures talk about David, especially after his death, it's talking about David's greater son, right? Talking about the Messiah. Verse 24, And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. So that's talking about David's greater son. That's according to the promise in Second Samuel 7 that, you know, through you, David, um, your throne will never... Um, fade away. It will always be established. There will always be someone on your throne. For eternity, someone will reign. That that man is, is Jesus, his descendant, David's descendant. Um, Alright, we need to keep moving here. In chapters 38 and 39, the book closes with some, ex, some end times visions. Describe some end times defeats of all of God's enemies. I think that's... Um, is that Gog and Magog? Yeah. So you can read about those. In chapters 40 through 48, we have this mammoth-sized temple that's described that's going to be rebuilt and going to be better than ever. Look at chapter 43. Chapter 43. And would someone read verses 1 through 5? All right, so here Ezekiel's given a vision, a future vision of what's happening. So before he was getting a vision of what's going on in Judah at the time that idolatry was rampant. Here he's getting a vision into the future of when this temple is going to be reestablished. Then look at verse 7. 
He said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet which, where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. And the house of Israel will not again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their harlotry and by their, the, the corpses of their kings when they die. And then verse 9, Now let them put away their harlotry and the corpses of their kings far from me, and I will dwell among them forever. And then skip ahead to chapter 48, verse 35. Chapter 48, verse 35, very last verse in Ezekiel. It reads, The city shall be 18,000 cubits round about, and the name of the city from that day will be, The Lord is there. So the way that people will describe this future heavenly, or actually it's going to be a, an earthly temple, millennial temple, is, is they're going to describe it as the Lord is there. God's presence is here. It's not a place where the glory, it's not going to be called Ichabod in any way. The glory has departed. Turn to Revelation 21, Revelation 21, and um, we see this tabernacle that Ezekiel is talking about. And notice what the best part about the millennial kingdom and the eternal state is going to be. The new heavens and the new earth is actually what's described here. The best part about it, see if you can see it in the verses here that we read. Verse tw- chapter 21, verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down, out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, mourning, crying, pain, for the first things have passed away. So all of Ezekiel is pointing to the glory of God that God's glory is some way is being defamed and God's res- working to restore that by judging evil and giving uh, prospect or hope for grace. Coming grace, coming uh, goodness by God in this future millennial temple or future eternal temple where God will dwell on the earth in this new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven. It's about um, from a little bit past the Mississippi all the way to the coast of California. I'm trying to show you the dimensions. And then basically from the top of our country to the bottom of the country, that's about the shape of it. And then it's just as high as it is wide and long. It's in the shape of a cube. And the only thing that was in the shape of a cube, I've mentioned before, in the Old Testament is the Holy of Holies. And that's why the New Jerusalem is shaped that way because God Himself, the triune God, will live among... You, see, you recognize in the Millennial Temple, God the Father will not be living on the earth in the Millennial Temple. God the Son will be. He'll be reigning on the throne for a thousand years. But there's still going to be sin, corruption. There's, going to be, um, there's still going to be death and pain because you have some people who've actually moved from the, the tribulation time and they've actually moved into... Uh, with their unglorified bodies into the millennial kingdom. But in the new heavens and the new earth, that's going to be a time when God, the triune God, reigns in the center of the city and all all the gates will be open. People will come in and go out. All right. Uh, The projector's not working this morning. I have two videos I want to show you and we have some time to see those so we need to go over into the auditorium to do that. So I've never taken you on a field trip and so... Now is the best time for us to do that. Let's do that now. Watch those videos and then we'll be dismissed.
whatever you want. The book of the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a priest who had been living in Jerusalem during the first Babylonian attack on the city. And they spared the city, but they took a first wave of Israelite prisoners and hauled them off into exile, and Ezekiel was among them. So the book begins five years after all that, and Ezekiel is sitting on the bank of an irrigation canal near his Israelite refugee camp, and it's his 30th birthday, no less, the year that he would have been installed as a priest in Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden, Ezekiel has this vision. He sees a storm cloud approaching, and then inside the cloud are four strange creatures that have wings outstretched and touching each other. And these creatures each had four faces, and then he saw four wheels, one bite each creature and then he saw that the wings of the creatures were supporting this dazzling platform and then on that platform is a throne and then sitting on that throne is this human-like creature glowing and shrouded in fire and then all of a sudden Ezekiel realizes what he's seeing he calls it the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord it's God riding his royal throne chariot now the word glory in Hebrew it's kavod it means heavy or significant. The biblical authors use this word to describe the physical appearance and manifestation of God's significance when he shows up in person. These images in the vision, they're very similar to what happened when God appeared on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. And it's also very similar to the depictions of God's presence over the Ark of the Covenant. And that's actually the most shocking thing about Ezekiel's vision. What is God's glory doing in Babylon? It's supposed to be above the Ark of the Covenant, in the temple, in Jerusalem. And so the first section of the book opens to explore that question as Ezekiel begins to accuse Israel of rebellion. So God first speaks to Ezekiel from the throne chariot, and he commissions him as a prophet. Ezekiel is to accuse Israel of breaking their covenant agreement with God in a couple ways. Israel has given their allegiance to other gods and has been worshiping idols, and this has all led to rampant social injustice and violence. And so as a result, God appoints Ezekiel to warn the people. The first Babylonian attack that took Ezekiel into exile is going to be matched by another, and Jerusalem, its temple, all face imminent destruction. So Ezekiel uses words and more to get his message across. He also performs sign acts. These were a form of street theater. Ezekiel would go out in public and start behaving in these really bizarre ways that were like parables of his prophetic message. So he was supposed to build a tiny model of Jerusalem and then stage an attack on it. Or he was to shave off all of its hair and then chop it up with a sword. Or the most extreme, he was to play the role of the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement. And he would lay on his side for over a year, eating food cooked over poop as a sign of the nasty food that people will have to eat during the siege of Jerusalem. And perhaps the most disheartening thing of all is the bad news God gave Ezekiel that no one was going to listen to him. Israel would reject him because of their rebellious and hard heart. And this recalls Moses' description of the people after the wilderness rebellion, when he predicted that exile would one day happen, and Ezekiel had the unfortunate privilege of seeing it all come to pass. 
And so a dismayed Ezekiel, he begins to perform his task. And after about a year, he has another vision. This one is about the temple. He goes on this virtual tour of the temple, and he sees what's happening there in his absence, and it is not good. In the outer courtyard, in front of the temple, he sees this large idol statue. And then he sees the elders of Israel worshiping other gods, both outside and inside the temple. And then he sees the women of Israel. They're worshiping a Babylonian god named Tammuz, and the vision ends with God's glorious throne chariot moving up and away from the temple. It's leaving, going east, headed towards Babylon. And so in chapter 11, we come to see why and how God's glory appeared to Ezekiel there in Babylon. Israel's idolatry and their covenant violations, it's become so blatant and offensive that God has left his temple. They've driven him away and he consigns it to destruction. But God hasn't abandoned his people. Rather, he goes into exile with them. And so at the end of this vision in chapter 11, God promises that he will return a remnant of Israel back to the land. And he'll transform them by removing their heart of stone and giving them a new soft heart of flesh so that they can love and truly follow their God after all. This is a small glimmer of hope, and it's quickly submerged under the reality of the imminent destruction. But chapter 11, it's a key transition, and it helps us understand how the rest of the book has been designed. So the next three sections are all announcements of God's judgment, first on Israel, then on the nations around Israel, and then on Jerusalem itself. But then after that, the hopeful conclusion of chapter 11 gets developed in the final three sections of the book. First, hope for Israel, then for the nations, and then for all creation. Chapters 12 through 24 focus on God's judgment coming to Israel. And this is a diverse collection of poems and essays. And here Ezekiel shows his fondness for parable and allegory. So he depicts Israel as a burnt, useless stick or as a rebellious wife, or as a dangerous, raging lion that gets captured, or as two promiscuous sisters. These are all depictions of Israel's senseless rebellion and idolatry that results in their ruin. In this section, Ezekiel also acts like a lawyer. He begins arguing the case that, first of all, Jerusalem's destruction is truly deserved after centuries of covenant violation. And that even if the most righteous people in the world, like Noah or Daniel or Job, were alive and praying for God to spare Israel, God would not accept their prayers. It's far too late. And so God's goodness actually demands that he bring justice on this generation of Israel. The exile has become inevitable. They've reached the point of no return. Following this, Ezekiel focuses first on the nations immediately around Israel, and then on the two most powerful states in the region, Egypt and then Tyre. Israel has allied with these nations and adopted their gods and their idols. And so God accuses the kings of Tyre and Egypt for arrogantly viewing themselves as gods who get to define right and wrong on their own terms. And God holds these kings accountable for their pride, and he announces that he will use Babylon to bring them down. They will face God's justice along with everybody else. Following these really intense sections is a short story in chapter 33. Ezekiel's met by a refugee who's just arrived from Jerusalem, and he gives them the report that Babylon has attacked the city of Jerusalem, that the city has fallen, and the temple is destroyed. Ezekiel's grim warnings have become a reality. But remember, the end of chapter 11, that's not the end of the story. And so in the next video, we'll explore Ezekiel's profound vision of hope. But for now, that's the first half of the book of Ezekiel.
book of the prophet Ezekiel. In the first video, we were introduced to Ezekiel the priest, and he's sitting among the exiles in Babylon. And he's confronted by the awesome glory of God's temple presence, but it's appearing to him in Babylon. And then Ezekiel discovers why. It's because of Israel's idolatry and injustice that has compelled God to abandon his own temple. And while there is still hope for the future, the book went on to develop Ezekiel's message of divine judgment, first for Israel and then for the nations around Israel. And then a key moment happened in chapter 33. Ezekiel receives a report that the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem is over because the city has fallen the temple is destroyed. Ezekiel's grim words of warning came true. The exile was the most horrendous catastrophe that ever happened to Israel, and it raised the big questions of whether God was done with Israel for good. But remember, at the end of chapter 11, God promised that there was still a future beyond exile for Israel. And so the rest of the book is designed to explore Ezekiel's vision of hope, first for Israel, then for the nations, and then for all of creation. The hope for Israel begins with God promising to raise up a new David, a future messianic king who's going to be the kind of leader that Israel needed but never got. And this new Israel who's going to come under the messianic king's rule is going to be a transformed people. God's going to deal with the heart of their problem of rebellion by giving them new hearts. It's just like Moses promised at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. God says he's going to remove their hard hearts and send his spirit into his people to give them new soft hearts that can love and obey their God. And this idea gets developed in the next strange vision. Ezekiel sees a huge valley filled up with dry human bones and skeletons. And God tells him that it's an image, a metaphor, for Israel's spiritual state. So their rebellion against God, it resulted in exile and the literal death of many people. But it was also a metaphorical death of their covenant relationship. And God tells Ezekiel that his spirit is coming to bring his people back to life. And so this wind comes and it causes all of the bones to stand up and it fills them with breath and life. And then skin grows over the bones and then all of a sudden Ezekiel sees all of these new humans standing in front of him. Now this vision, it's recalling the story about the creation of humans in Genesis chapter 2, where God made humans out of dirt and divine breath. And so Israel and all humanity have rebelled, resulting in death. And so the only hope is that God would perform a new act of creation and remake humans in such a way that they can truly live in a relationship of love with God and with each other. And so after God is going to deal with the evil that's in the hearts of his own people, some questions still remain unresolved. Like, what about the evil that's still rampant out there among the nations? And what about the future of God's dwelling place in the temple? And this is what the final two sections of the book are about. So first come chapters 38 and 39, and they promise God's final defeat of evil among the nations, which gets personified by a ruler who's named Gog from the land of Magog. Now, this name is derived from a genealogy of ancient kingdoms and lands from Genesis chapter 10, and it referred to powerful nations from the distant past. And so Ezekiel picks up this ancient biblical name as an image of any and all violent kingdoms. And so we find that Gog gets allied with seven nations that come from all four directions of the compass. It's clearly an image that represents all of the nations. 
And this also helps us understand why Ezekiel describes Gog with images that he used earlier in the book to describe the king of Tyre and the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. For Ezekiel, Gog is an amalgam of all of the worst, most violent people in the Bible. Gog is the archetype of human rebellion against God. The basic story in these chapters is that Gog resists God's plan to restore his people. And so just like Pharaoh in the Exodus story, Gog comes to destroy the people. But God unleashes his justice on Gog, and it's in a flurry of scenes that don't actually make very good literal sense if you read them in sequence. Because first, Gog and his armies are consumed by an earthquake, but then they're consumed by fire two different times. And then after that, God comes and strikes Gog and his army down in the fields where they lay unburied for months. It's clear that these scenes are full of symbol and imagery. Ezekiel has pulled out his entire poetic tool set here to describe how God is determined to finally defeat human evil that has ruined his world. And it's so that he can pave the way for a new creation. And so once evil is finally dealt with among the nations, the last section of the book describes how God's presence is going to one day return to his people and his temple to bring cosmic restoration. So Ezekiel first gets this long, elaborate vision of a new temple and a new city. He's given this heavenly tour guide who shows him around the new temple complex, and it's much larger and more majestic than even Solomon's temple. There's a new altar, new priests, a whole new system of worship. And then after this elaborate tour, God's glorious throne chariot that he saw back in his first vision comes back and it enters the new temple. Now, the meaning of these temple visions has been the source of debate for a long, long time. So some Christian and Jewish readers believe that this vision will be fulfilled literally one day and that these chapters offer the actual blueprint of the new temple that will be built when the Messiah returns and brings God's kingdom. But many other Jewish and Christian readers think that this vision, like all of Ezekiel's other visions, is full of symbols. And they depict the reality of God's presence returning to his people in the Messianic kingdom, but not necessarily in the form of an actual building. Whichever view you take, it's important that Ezekiel never calls the city Jerusalem. And chapters 47 and 48 show why. Ezekiel sees this tiny stream pouring out of the temple threshold and steps, and then it quickly becomes this raging river, and then it flows out of the temple and the city into the desert, into one of the most desolate places on planet Earth, the Dead Sea Valley. And then that river, it leaves behind it a trail of trees and life, and then the Dead Sea gets transformed into a living sea that's teeming with plants and animals. All of this imagery comes from the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And we see just how cosmic Ezekiel's vision really is. God's plan has always been to restore all humanity and all creation back to his life-giving presence. And so the book ends with the name of this garden city. The Lord is there. And so Ezekiel's visions come to a close, full of hope for a new future. New humans living in a new world that's animated by God's life-giving spirit. It's a world permeated with God's love and justice. And that's what the book of Ezekiel is all about.